0: 1 Samuel chapter 14 and starting at verse 24. Follow along with me if you will, please. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge to the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies. that They found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon. The people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. The people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. There was not a man among the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. The people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, "'Cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan.' And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, "'Tell me what you have done.' Jonathan told him, "'I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die.' Saul said, "'God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan.' Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the king of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly, struck the Amalekites, and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchai shua and The names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abio. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our title this morning is Darkened Hearts and Bright Eyes to contrast the status of Saul and of his son Jonathan. You can kind of get the drama of this passage pretty clearly as we've already taken some time to see Jonathan's posture before the Lord in the beginning of chapter 14. It was not too long ago that Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, let's go up after the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will deliver us against them. It may be that God, who can work with a many, many armies or many soldiers or few soldiers, it doesn't matter, it may be that he will work salvation among us. The armor-bearer agrees, and they go up, and they kill 20 Philistines, just the two of them, which starts basically a domino effect and routes the Philistines and has the Philistines with their much larger army running from the Israelite army. Saul's attitude, Saul's actions, not really the number one thing you want to talk about on Father's Day, right? Happy Father's Day, by the way. I'm going to read about a king who in his own self-exertion and pride moves forward with an oath and desires to take the life of his son in order to secure the blessing of God. It's fascinating what people do in the Bible that in a weird, backwardsy kind of way mirrors the gospel, right? When I talk about a father offering his son as a sacrifice, that should send up a lot of, well, not red flags. Red flags are bad. But that should remind you of the overall message of the Bible, right? Saul's working in a backwards way to that, though because he doesn't see God's blessing. He doesn't have a desire to advance God's glory. You know, this this word bless, blessed, blessing, is a word that our culture has kind of hijacked from the faith, hasn't it? We perhaps even have partaken in posting uh, some exciting family vacation on social media and ending our joyous proclamation of what we did with, hashtag blessed, right? Sometimes we even say it in person, in real life. I wonder what the cultural perspective of blessing is. If it is just sort of the sense of seeing the good in life and, and taking advantage of it, leaning headfirst into all the good things that we can experience. I was reading in the Valley of Vision, the Puritan prayer book, this... Uh, prayer that was written by one of the Puritans, entitled Blessings, listen to these words. The Puritan says, I bless thee for tempering every distress with joy. Too much of the former might weigh me down, that is, too much of the distress might weigh me down. But then he also says, too much of the latter, that is, too much of the joy, might puff me up. Thou art wise to give me a taste of both, both distress and joy. I love thee for giving me clusters of grapes in the wilderness and drops of heavenly wine that set me longing to have my fill. Apart from thee, I quickly die. Bereft of thee, I starve. Far from thee, I thirst and droop. But thou art all I need. Let me continually grasp the promise. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I think that this prayer really gets at the heart of the biblical idea of blessing that it is an attachment to God, that it is an attachment to his promises, such as Christ promised to us that he will never leave nor forsake us. But it is also a realization that these blessings of God come in the midst of the trials and the tribulations that we face in this world that are allowed by the same God. So again, he writes, I bless thee for tempering every distress with joy, because too much distress would weigh me down, but too much joy would puff me up. I think he hits on the idea of the design of God being to, in the midst of the task he has set for us, grant us certain blessings that wouldn't necessarily just make us float our way up to heaven, but that would lift our spirits in such a way that we might be better prepared to face what's before us. And that's what I think the honey is in this passage. See God's blessing. Advance his glory. Taste the honey, Jonathan might say. Let's look through this passage a little bit and see what this call really is. First, we have Saul in light of this great victorious forward movement in the battle. If you remember again from last week, Jonathan has started this waterfall of victory over the Philistines to the point where even the Philistines are so confused about what's going on, they're fighting each other. You might remember last week, Saul stops for a second as he sees the Philistines kind of scrambling. and He says, we should seek the Lord. Let's pray for a second here. And as the ark comes forward, he says, never mind, let's, let's just go. It clear, it's clearly seen that God is blessing our efforts, so let's go into the battle. And they get there and they find, well, the Philistines are fighting themselves. It was interesting, I read in a commentary, what seemed to allude to the idea that because there were rebellious Israelites earlier in chapter 13 that defected or changed sides over to the Philistines, that when the Bible author tells us that the Philistines were fighting themselves, that it was really just those Hebrews that were a part of the army. I think that may be part of it, but it also seems to try to be disarming the Bible of the supernatural power of God, which is probably not a good perspective to have but it is the Lord who fights for his people. And he showed Saul that, as we read last week. But rather than acknowledging the blessing and the goodness of God, Saul moves forward and makes a very foolish oath. Did you see it in the beginning of our passage? The men were hard-pressed that day, and the ESV actually says, unique amongst modern translations, I think most translations, maybe if you have NIV, you can tell me, Um, But I think it says something because or or that Saul's oath that he laid on the people was the hard pressing. I looked into the Hebrew briefly about this. It's not entirely clear. It could be perhaps either way. But the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. They were working hard. And either it was because of this oath that Saul put on them or it was Saul seeing their hard pressed labor. And he said, I'm going to make it even harder for you so that you don't give up. And I'm going to say, cursed be the man who eats food until this evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Again, looking at Saul on Father's Day seems a might bit inappropriate, right? I don't think fathers are at their best when they're putting curses on their children. Likewise, a king putting a curse upon his soldiers. But we're immediately met with how foolish this oath is because Jonathan, who the author is clearly painting in a good light, is apart from the soldiers when this oath is made. And so as they're wandering through the the forest, you can see, let's see, this is in verse 26, sorry, 25. As they came into the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. This may be because there were bees' nests and honey was coming up out of the ground. I, I don't know that that's as common that honeybees nest in the ground. What I think is going on here is there's so much honey that it is literally dripping onto the ground and dripping on their hands, on their armor as they're walking through. There's, there's an abundance of this goodness going on. And as they enter in there, and no doubt all these soldiers are starving and famished and wishing that they could just take a little taste of the honey, they look over and see Jonathan and say, oh, cool, there's honey on the ground. Grab his spear Fill it with honey. Take a little taste. The Bible says that his eyes were brightened when he saw this. This is that effect of the blessing. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a second here. But their their response is terror because they know Saul made an oath and he pronounced a curse. Anyone who eats until this battle is over is going to be cursed. Jonathan, again, the author, shows us that Jonathan is really the one with his head on straight here. He says, look, my, my father has not... Yeah, he's strictly charged the people, but what he's really done here, verse 29, is he's troubled the land. See how my eyes became bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. We can see already at the outset, Saul's desire to have the most impacting victories he possibly can has led him to an oath of fasting, not only for himself, but for those under his charge. And he thinks that by doing so, he will acquire God's blessing. He will earn it, as it were. Jonathan's words again, it would have been better if they had tasted even a little of the honey. And that now that they haven't, now that they're famished and they continue marching through the woods, the victory against the Philistines has not been great. Saul is his own worst enemy, isn't he? We see then the further outpouring of this curse in verse 31 as they finally make progress they finally capture a new area and they're able to gather some of the spoils some of the livestock from the philistines and they're so hungry you can imagine the men throwing down their helmets and their armor going after the livestock and slaughtering them right there on the ground because they're starved somehow they made it through the battle without passing out from hunger And what happens? Those priests, those tattletales, look what they're doing. They're eating the food with with the blood. They are dishonoring the Lord. Now, is that true? Yeah, they are, right? They're not supposed to do that. It's set out very clearly in the law that you are supposed to separate the blood from an animal. Sorry, this is pretty gruesome, isn't it? But it's true. (laughs) It's biblical. So Saul says, oh, goodness, you've acted treacherously ironic and painful to hear those words come from Saul, isn't it? He says, you have acted treacherously. So he builds an altar. The author implies that this is something that Saul would continue to do, continue to build altars. And he doesn't say one way or the other, whether it's right or wrong, but we do have this theme already from chapter 13 that Saul doesn't do too well when it comes to worship. Well, let's remember that. He becomes impatient. He offers the sacrifice because Samuel doesn't show up on his timetable. And so here he is building an altar, and he's going to try to atone for the sin of his people, perhaps with eyes rolled in the back of his head thinking, oh my goodness, what is so wrong with these soldiers? And let's keep that in mind too when we come next week, Lord willing, to 1 Samuel 15, where the issue of worship comes up again and the matter of giving a sacrifice where Saul is going to yet again fail. Well, after all this has happened, he decides to move forward. He says, Hey, let's keep going with this battle. Let's, let's try to take them all out. Let's go through the night as if they weren't exhausted enough already. He probably looked at them and said, All right, you've had a snack. Let's keep going. Let's keep pressing on. Let's make this battle over as soon as we can without stopping. And the priests advise him, I think, wisely here. Hey, let's, let's seek the Lord here. And the Lord doesn't answer, the Lord's silent. He doesn't realize that he's being unapproved of in this role that he's taking. But instead, he thinks, oh yeah, somebody else has messed up yet again. So they cast lots. This is that biblical practice in the Old Testament of using the Urim and Thurim. It's kind of a mysterious thing, but basically like drawing straws or asking an eight ball, that kind of thing. um, Only in a God-ordained kind of way. And we see that as he's casting lots and, and figuring all this thing out, the, the consequence of his oath is becoming more and more dire. Comes to the point where he realizes that it's Jonathan who has acted treacherously. So we have a, an accusation both from father and son, again on Father's Day. The son accuses the father of troubling the land, and now the father has accused the son of acting, acting treacherously before the Lord. And it's interesting, and you might have heard as I was reading, Jonathan's response to Saul was very much like, all right, well, okay, I'll die. I'm the one who did it. I tasted a little bit of honey. And really, in the Hebrew, you can kind of get a little bit of that sarcasm. It kind of makes sense. He's saying, yeah, go ahead and kill me, I guess, Dad. I mean, if that's what you really need to do. It's ridiculous, but here we go. And as Saul has promised an oath, the people then make a new oath. They swear as the Lord lives that Jonathan will not be harmed today. They go, Saul, do you realize what you're doing? You're taking the one with whom God worked this great salvation in the first place, and you're wanting to put him to death? Saul joins in the silence then. The silence first being the soldiers that wouldn't answer, who acted treacherously. Then the Lord, who was silent before Saul as well, and now Saul is silent indeed. Jonathan's been ransomed by this appealing to the higher authority than Saul, and Saul can do nothing about it. The last part of this chapter kind of gives a a sort of bookend to Saul's uh, history, as it were, even though Saul's story will continue, and Jonathan's story as well, but it seems in verses 47 to 52 that what we have is this sort of attitude of like, hey, Saul's kind of done here. He, here's who his kids were. Here's his wife. Here's all the battles that he had. And then there's something interesting at the end, too. If you go to verse 52, it says, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, even though he defeated all these other enemies around him. And then it says, when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. This was the kind of leader that Saul had become. One who didn't lead sacrificially for the sake of his people, but who rather took from the people just the way Samuel promised. He said, If you want a king like the nations, guess what you're going to get? A king like the nations. And he's going to take everything from you. He's going to do so. In this chapter, we see very clearly that he's going after God's blessing, he's going after the goodness of God in his efforts he's not finding it. At the same time for us, we can see clearly that God's blessing is the nourishment that we need to advance his glory. That we need to advance his glory, not our own. If you recall earlier in the passage, the oath that Saul made was in order that his vengeance might be accomplished. He was focused on his own glory. And God has no desire or no pleasure in blessing people to their own ends, to their own glory, to their own vengeance. Rather, his desire, as we see with Jonathan, is to brighten the eyes. In verse 27, we see. This means a rejuvenation. It is the giving of the power of vision. It's a refreshing work that enables one to do, to see the goodness of God in the task that's before them. That's the blessing that Jonathan had from the honey. It's not to kick back and relax and just kind of see what God will do. Let go and let God, as we say, right? Hashtag blessed. It's not to just kick back and let God do what God's going to do, but rather to receive what is provided by him so that we can cheer our hearts on the journey. And I think we need that, don't we? Don't we need some cheering from the Lord? Not cheering on like, you know, pom-poms and like, oh, you got this. You guys are so awesome. But rather, don't we need the reminder of his goodness to us day by day? Don't we need that little taste of the honey dripping down? And what a wonderful picture that truly is of honey being all over the ground, dripping down from the trees. I mean, God's blessing is not this hidden thing that you can't experience. Goodness, we're sitting in an air conditioning room, people, right? I know it's still a little bit warm, but... There's blessings we have lights on, you know, you have a car to drive home in, whatever those things might be. Uh, The blessings of God are all around us and they are given to us with the purpose of cheering our hearts on the journey God has given us. To see the goodness of God and the task he's put before us. That's our challenge. That was Saul's challenge and Saul failed at this challenge miserably. We watched an interesting movie that I think it has been out for a few years um, just the past couple weekends ago. It's called The Founder. Have you ever seen it? It's about the guy who basically stole McDonald's, not to give away the uh, twist there. Um, Michael Keaton, great, by the way. But this character, we're introduced to him as a traveling salesman. He's selling uh, milkshake machines, and and he's doing all this. he, He happens upon the original McDonald's in San Bernardino, California, I believe it was. And he goes in and he gets a tour. He sees how everything's working. He's, he's enamored with this, the system of what McDonald's has, the McDonald's brothers had created, um, in fast food delivery. But throughout the movie, you can tell this is not going to end well. Probably because you know the story as well in real life. But the. It's a fascinating movie to watch because the way that the scenes are filmed and, and the actors' expressions and all these things, it's just continually like getting worse and worse and worse. And, and you kind of wait for that moment of redemption for the main character, but what happens is almost like an anti-redemption. When he finally says, you know what, I'm buying out the McDonald's brothers of their share and I'm owning the whole thing and putting them out of business out of their little hamburger stand, I want Everything. He says over and over and over again. And he makes it very clear that when he wants something, he won't stop until he gets it. And when he finally gets it, he's going to just go get that next thing as well. That's why there are 8,000 McDonald's in Lima, Ohio. Not really, but seriously, like there's one around the corner everywhere, right? You don't have to spit very far to find one. I think that the thing that I walked away with from this movie, besides just great sadness and a and a probably fake commitment in my heart never to eat at the golden arches again. Besides that was this picture of a darkened heart that indulges in self-exertion. I think that's something that we see with Saul here as well. We've all heard that phrase, the absolute power corrupts absolutely. And what's tragic about that phrase, absolute power, and those who fall into that category, the truth of that quote, is that it's never absolute power. It's just the perception of absolute power that does it this is where we find saul this morning a darkened heart romans 121 paul tells us about this those who have denied the existence of god and it says their foolish hearts were darkened and in that darkening of the heart what you experience is the silence of god last week we talked about how saul spent too much time overthinking and now we're at a place where he is overexerting himself It's fascinating if you go, again, the first part of 14 to the second part of 14. Saul's kind of just hanging out, just thinking, reflecting, wondering what he's going to do. Am I going to take any action? Jonathan says, I'm going to take some action. Here we go. Let's take out these Philistines. And now it's as if seeing what his son did, he's trying to catch up to him. Again, great Father's Day message, right? A dad that just wants to catch up with the accomplishments of his son. But his heart is so darkened that it is so easy for him to indulge in his own self-exertion, the exertion of his own power, his own plans, his own dreams and goals. Saul is overexerting himself and shows no sign of stopping in this chapter. Even when those moments of victories come in, it seems that he just becomes harsher with those around him. He's darkened to his own sin. He's led so far into self-exertion that he begins cursing those whom he is supposed to lead sacrificially, doing the opposite of God's work for his people. We read a few weeks ago when we were in 1 Samuel 11, Proverbs 18:1, that says, The fool who isolates himself breaks out against the Lord. And this, again, Saul's action is to isolate himself on the throne, top of the pyramid, king of the hill. And he lashes out not only against the Lord, but also at everyone else around him. Church, a warning that might come from this passage this morning is that if we are so focused on our own work that we not only miss the blessing of God, but dismiss the blessing of God, we're only going to experience the silence of God. That is the result of darkened hearts. And being focused on your own work, it may not be that you're driven the way Saul was or the way, oh man, the guy's last name was Croc in the movie too, by the way. It was just perfect. He even admits it. Why he wanted the McDonald's name so bad in the end of the movie. He's like, who's going to eat at Croc's hamburgers, right? It sounds like a crook. And and absolutely, he's right. And he lived up to his name in the story and in real life. We might look at those stories. We might look at Croc or we might look at Saul and we say, I'm not exactly like that. But in your relationship with God, is there an overemphasis on your exertion, on your work, on your efforts? In your understanding of God's love, of God's blessing, of the goodness of God. I'm going to see the goodness of God because I'm going to do this and I'm going to lean hard into it. And and this is the problem with exalting our own works against the faith that God calls us to. Is that when we do that, we don't even, we start to not even be able to realize that we're doing it. I think in some ways there's a nominal Christianity in our country that kind of says, hey, I got baptized at one point, or um, I, I went to church all my life, or I did this or I did that thing, and just kind of a calm sort of assurance that, that my works in the past have secured my heavenly residence. I think that even in a church that wants to exalt grace and faith and trust in the work of Christ, there's a temptation not to say, oh, I'm going to rest on the past merits, but rather to to rest on my overexertion, to, to almost outprove God's work in my life. And I think that's what Saul's doing here as well. Saul's heart was so darkened. His selfish view was so overexerted. He saw nothing of his own darkness and was only convinced of his own son's treachery, of his soldier's disobedience and impurity. But the ultimate end of dark hearts that indulge in self-exertion is to drive the innocent to the point of execution. All right, Jonathan, you're going to have to die. The Lord do as much to me if you do not die on this very day found six things in Saul's actions here that I think are helpful as we try to understand the trouble that self-exertion brings about. First of all, it brings with it a goal of self-promotion. Is that not clear in Saul's words and actions here? He is certainly not working for the good of Israel or for the glory of God. He does say at one point, he asked the Lord, hey, Will you bring salvation to Israel? Kind of echoing in the opposite sense Jonathan's words. You know, when Jonathan made it up the hill and he said, hey, if the Philistines invite us up, then we'll know that God has given them into our hand. And so sure enough, when the Philistines say, hey, come up here, we'll teach you something, Jonathan says, look, they've given the Philistines into the hand of Israel, not to the hand of Jonathan or the armor bearer, certainly not into the hand of Saul. However, Saul's whole goal is self-promotion. Secondly, the trouble of self-exertion is that we dismiss the blessing of God in the favor of our own work. We don't see the blessing of God as we ought to. We don't advance his own glory. Rather, we see God's pleasure and satisfaction with us in how much we spent for him in the past day or week or month or whatever it might be. Thirdly, the trouble of self-exertion is that we drain the life out of those around us. Then we end up recruiting more of them and set them up to fail as well. Saul in verse 36 and verse 40, that as Saul looks to his soldiers and says, let's do this, as he continually moves on, they just kind of say, do what is in your heart to do. Again, almost an echo of what the armor bearer said to Jonathan, but they don't add what the armor bearer says. The armor bearer says, do what is in your heart to do. I am with you, heart and soul. The soldiers look at Saul and they just say, do what's in your heart to do, clearly without that unity that Jonathan and his armor bearer had. Because... The self-exerting one brings that trouble to others around him. They drain the life. They recruit more of them, and they continually set them up to fail. Number four, those who have darkened hearts that indulge in self-exertion heap curses on others rather than blessings. Now, this, this may not be immediately applicable to us because we probably don't go around going, curse that driver in front of me. May all his days be woed by the... You know, probably don't do that. If you do, you're really weird. You shouldn't do that. But there is a principle in Scripture, and we're familiar with it. it life and death are in the power of the tongue, right? And, and perhaps it's a good exhortation to us fathers to watch things like our tones and our words before our children, Because it is the one who is darkened in his heart and is indulging in self-exertion who heaps curses on others rather than blessings. Who uses his tongue to destroy and tear down rather than to speak life and goodness and blessing into others. Number five, Saul was convinced of the wrong of others and couldn't even fathom his own wrongdoing. The darkened heart. Darkened heart doesn't only result in the silence of God, but results in your perception of sinlessness. I couldn't possibly be wrong because I am spending every ounce of my being to please God. Last one. Those who have darkened hearts indulging in self-exertion are unable to hear from God because they tuned him out long before so they started seeking him. See, Saul realizes at different points, I really ought to ask God for help with this. Things are getting a little bit difficult here. Let me see if he can help me out in this moment. In the silence of God, he doesn't immediately take as a judgment upon himself, but as a judgment upon others. Somebody else must have messed up. It couldn't have possibly been me. I don't know if you ever feel those moments where God seems silent, but I feel them even when his word is open before my eyes. Even when I'm reading the Bible out loud to myself. That feeling of the silence of God as though his presence is not truly there. Why would he do such a thing to his people? Even those moments where we're like, Lord, we're really seeking you. The only answer could be because there is sin in our hearts that we need to be dealing with. The silence of God is is not a permanent judgment on God's people. But it may be the prompting that we need to examine our hearts and realize that there might be something hidden there that we haven't dealt with. Now, let me give a warning in all of this because there's a movement out there that says, boy, if you have something wrong physically, emotionally, mentally in your life, all you need to do is confess your sin and you're guaranteed to be healed. That is not at all what I'm trying to get at here. There are those that take the silence of God as saying, look, God's ready to make your life perfect and easy and breezy and wonderful, if you just confess your sin and get over with it. Puritans showed us already in the Valley of Vision that God's desire is not to just heap nothing but joy into your life so that you simply float float your way up to heaven, but rather to do the balancing work of letting that trouble keep your feet well planted in the reality of this world and keep the blessing as... What keeps your eyes looking forward, looking upward, the brightening of your eyes? In the silence of God, when we experience that, however it might look in your own life, you shouldn't immediately say, oh, goodness, it's because my kids won't leave me alone. It's because I got too much going on at work. It's because... Maybe I need to look at my heart and say, Lord, maybe I'm just not listening for you. Maybe even with the Bible open, all I'm doing is just saying, well, I'm doing my Christian duty here and reading the chapters for the day. I can check off the reading calendar now and I'm all set. In one sense, Saul, who has pronounced a curse on everyone else, has done nothing but absorb it himself. Everyone else is experiencing collateral damage from that, of course. But Saul's curse should remind us that God has pronounced judgment and a curse on sin. Galatians 3.13 should remind us of this, that Paul teaches the Galatians very clearly As he's talking to them about being justified by faith alone and not by their own self-exertion or their own self-works. In verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Just a couple things from that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Jonathan was redeemed from the curse of Saul here, right, by the people. But Jonathan didn't become a curse. Jesus does. Jesus' commitment to us receiving the blessing of God and receiving the commission of God is so far that he's willing not only to take the curse, but to become a curse before God. So that in Christ, verse 14 says, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The result of Christ's suffering on the cross is blessing. Jesus brightens our eyes by the sweet blessing of salvation. This is something we need to return to daily. Just as much as we want that blessing, we ought to return to God's word and return to the cross, return to the empty tomb. Jonathan was redeemed in the eyes of the other soldiers because he had worked with the Lord, worked salvation this day with the Lord. Uh, God has, through Christ, redeemed us so that we might do the same. So that we might see the sweet blessing of our work with Christ, not apart from Him, not on our own, not on our own agenda, not of our own self-exertion, but rather, as Jesus teaches in John 15:5, apart from Him, we can do nothing. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, you're gonna bear much fruit. You're gonna be very effective. You're gonna be very effective at what God calls you to do. But apart from Him, you could do nothing. I think Saul gives us a very clear picture of what that nothing really looks like. It's not neutrality. It is the opposite. It is destruction rather than the life of Christ. Ephesians one To go back to Paul again. I've been reading through Ephesians a lot this year. And in verse 3, he expresses further this idea of blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I love the picture of that, that, that you might not perceive the full blessing of Christ in your life here, but in the heavenly places, you've got it all. And in some ways, those blessings are like the dripping of the honeycomb, coming down to this earth, and boy, stick your spear in it and enjoy it. Let your eyes be brightened by what Christ is doing in your life, because it's an overpouring of the reality of heaven. Eyes brightened to the truth of the gospel and the scriptures, pour forth the sweet honey of salvation into our darkened hearts. So has Christ brightened your eyes today? Has he reinvigorated you? Has he refreshed your heart so that you might see his goodness in whatever task he lays before you this week? Are you anticipating that? Or is it so easy, of course it is, so easy, for us to consider the tasks we have in the week ahead and say, oh my goodness, this is just going to be a terrible week. It's going to be filled with nothing but strife and trial and wearisome and I'm going to be exhausted at the end of every day. Would you open your eyes to see the drippings of God's blessing in your life? And would you, in one sense, indulge in that for the glory of Christ? Saul's self-exertion was for his own vengeance. Our delight in Christ's work is for the glory of the Father. So Christ's leadership, in contrast to Saul's leadership, Christ's leadership equips us to work together for his glory, to glorify God by refreshing others with his goodness, by taking those refreshing blessings that we have, those reminders of God's goodness in our lives, so that we might work further on our journey and refresh others with that same goodness. Proverbs 15.30, another passage that we read this past week, um, if you're reading in the reading plan, um, this is one that I sat on for a while, and of course I won't be able to recite it because memory, but Proverbs 15 and verse 30. So the light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. If you feel in one sense there's just no blessing for you today in some part of your life, be refreshed by the good news of Christ and allow that good news of Christ to, to pour over into every aspect of your life. And let that be a goal for you this week with others as well, to refresh them with good news, to rejoice the hearts of others by the joy that you experience in Christ, the blessings that he's poured out on us. It was interesting that Proverbs 15, verse 30, it can be read either as the eyes of someone else bringing joy to a neighbor or our own bright eyes as evidence of eternal joy. And I think we need both of those things. We need the evidence of the internal joy of Christ that we have inside us. And we also need that ability to lighten the eyes of others around us as well, to bring joy through our testimony of Christ's goodness. And the fact is, the people around us are hard-pressed, just like the beginning of our passage with the soldiers of Saul. That Saul looks at their hard-pressed status and heaps a curse on them instead of blessing them. Instead of saying, hey, we're going into a forest. Maybe there's going to be honey. Take something enjoy something of the goodness of God as we go on our journey. That's what we need to do. I read this past week just briefly about this missionary named James Fraser, who adds something to what we need to do in our refreshing others with goodness. He says that the cross that we are called to carry in our life in Christ, by the way, Jesus said in Luke 9, that if anyone would follow after him, let him take up his cross, deny himself and then follow after him. This James Frazier, who, again, was a missionary to China. I didn't throw that out yet. He says, the cross is going to hurt. Let it hurt. I'm going to work hard and pray hard by God's grace. You see, that's the difference between what Saul and Jonathan show us in chapter 14. Either we're going to take something from God's word and go, okay, great. With everything that I've got, here I go. Or are we going to go, okay, great, with everything that Christ has in me. Let's go with that. Frazier continues in regards to the, the pain and the, the trial that we'll experience in the midst of the blessing. He says, as soon as we cease to bleed, we cease to bless. A really great picture of, again, carrying a cross and experiencing the suffering of Christ in our own individual lives, however he's ordained them to be. And to recognize that That the bleeding of our lives, the sorrows and the trials, and the blessings are what we have to offer to this world around us. And if we cease to admit and embrace the trial that God has given to us, we'll cease to bless others in the midst of it as well. If we cease to see the trial as God's ordained goodness in our lives, as God is a redemptive God who can take something as challenging or as difficult as you're facing this week, And turn it around for your good, for his glory, and for a testimony to those around us. If we can get that in our hearts and minds, we can better embrace the mission he has for us. Let's bow our heads and pray together, please. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that, as Paul says, it is given for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Lord, some people say we're living in the last days, and then we've got Couple days left. We don't know how much time is left. We do know that the end of all things is upon us. Because the message of Christ has been completed. The work of Christ is completed. May we not revel in our own darkness and indulge in self-exertion, over-exertion, overthinking, over-emphasis on ourselves. May we find the work of Christ as satisfying and a blessing to our hearts this morning. May we dip our hand in the sweet honey of your blessing that we might be refreshed, that our eyes might be brightened, that we might be reinvigorated to the task that you have before us. May Christ reign over all, receiving the glory that is due your name. We might be a part of that mission that Christ came to glorify the Father. Let us join in By the power that you work in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.